When a senior naval officer told him he couldn't have a beer after midnight, fighter pilot Ben Coleman found inspiration to reform the U.S. military. Today we talk with the guy who created the virtuous insurgency at the Pentagon about what it takes to make a disruptor. Hello and Dobriden from Lviv, Ukraine. This is Joe Lindsley with the Lviv Lab for the Activation of Democracy, a startup innovation to reimagine media in this age of corona. Today we talk with my friend Ben Coleman, who calls himself an aggressively curious bureaucracy buster. He's the godfather of the Virtuous Insurgency program at the Pentagon, a series of rapid innovation cells where he launched two successful startups within the world's largest bureaucracy. A former Navy fighter pilot, he flew combat missions and made over 360 aircraft carrier landings. He's a graduate of Northwestern University and Stanford Business School. And today, from his home in Dallas, Texas, he consults for leaders of the world's top transportation companies and more. We talked to Ben about what it takes to be a disruptor in this age and in any other. And going back to when you were a kid, what, what, do you, what was it that made you inherently a disruptor? You know, growing up, I was probably the most straight-laced kid you'd ever imagine. I was a Boy Scout. I, I got my Eagle Scout at, at 17. I never swore. Uh, I didn't drink or smoke with my peers. I was the guy who was going to church youth group uh, every Sunday night and was the one kind of scolding my peers for not following the straight and narrow path. And interestingly, that's kind of why I went to the military. I wanted a very regimented, strict policy. You know, I was like, this is, this is right and wrong. And if you deviate from that, then, you know, you're some, somehow morally suspect. And so I was the last person in the world that would kind of take an entrepreneurial bent, given my upbringing. And I, I had a fantastic upbringing. My parents did a great job, but I was just one of those kids who didn't think outside the box and saw no need to. But when I got to college, I was in a program called Navy ROTC. It's basically a commissioning program through civilian colleges in the U.S. that's parallel to the Naval Academy. But I wanted to be a Naval officer. You know, I had grown up uh, watching the movie Midway, which is a 1976 classic with Peter Fonda about the battle of Midway between the Japanese and the Americans. Fell in love with carrier aviation. My grandfather was a carrier aviator, so I had those influences throughout, throughout my life. But my senior year in college, uh, I met a guy named Dan Moore, and he was at the time the commanding officer of our ROTC unit. And the first day of the class, we had this class called Leadership and Ethics for our senior year. And, you know, the Naval Academy put out a curriculum he literally walked in and said, you know what, I'm throwing out the curriculum and building my own from scratch. And I was, I was aghast. Like, how can a, a captain in the Navy do something so against the grain? But it turned out to be one of the most transformative years of my life. That captain, that professor, introduced Ben's class to the ideas of his own personal mentor, Admiral James Bunn Stockdale, Jim Stockdale, who led the U.S. prisoners of war at the Hanoi Hilton. In that very difficult situation, he built a culture from scratch to help his team survive. The professor also introduced Ben's class to the works and the ideas of lesser-known military strategist John Boyd, a United States Air Force fighter pilot. John Boyd. And John Boyd is some, somebody you all should learn about and read about. A book called The Fighter Pilot Who Changed the Art of War is on your must-read list. Um, but, but John Boyd's life showed me that a good military officer was not someone who followed orders. It was someone who did what was right. And John Boyd is one of these guys who never made it to general. He always was rubbing people the wrong way, but had a really impactful impact on, on all of the Defense Department, all the way back to the 1960s. And he basically started his career by going to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base and stealing computer time. 
And what he was doing that computer time for was not for the officially sanctioned calculations, but it was to work out a theory of his about energy maneuverability. And so, you know, for those who have flown fighter planes, energy maneuverability is kind of the core uh, foundational principle that we use right now to compare two sets of fighter aircraft to determine which one will be better in what regime of flight. But before 1960, this had never been conceived of. And John Boyd was able to get these ideas and thoughts because he had studied outside military history, sort of thermodynamics, neurodynamics, and the, the, the history of, of warfare and history and, and combine these things together and realize there is a quantitative way to understand who can win an air battle. And so being introduced to John Boyd really transformed my view of the military. And I became the straight-laced guy who would wake up at 5 a.m. to polish its boots to the ones who was pushing back against all of the regulations that, we, that were put out for good reason. I don't know about it, but the story of how you came to create, yeah, yeah. you know, so after you, you were a fighter pilot and then you were training other fighter pilots. Um, and then from there, how did you go to create this uh, virtuous, what is the virtuous insurgency and how did you yeah. go to create, come to create the rapid innovation cell? Totally. So, so one, of the, uh, one of the philosophies that John Boyd pushed forward is this concept called the OODA loop. And it stands for observe, orient, decide, and act. And, you know, the way he applied it was to fighter aviation, where if you can observe, orient yourself, decide, and act quicker than your opponent, you can, you can win. And, that, and, you know, businesses have applied that. But I took it in a much longer sense. I had a decades-long view of it. And so I spent the first um, probably eight years of my military career observing and orienting myself to my surroundings. So, you know, going through flight training, going to combat in Afghanistan, flying off aircraft carriers, observing the leadership behaviors of my commanding officers, of the other folks in my organization. And I actually had this little black book that I would take notes in about the things that I saw that went well from leadership and the things I saw that didn't go well. But I didn't really do anything with it. And part of that was I was just too junior in the military to make a difference, but I didn't see the outlet or the avenue to actually use it as leverage. When I got to San Diego, and this was probably year eight of my military career, I hit, I hit a roadblock and we, I walked into the squadron one day and um, a new, uh, one of our enlisted sailors had been arrested for drunk driving. And as a result, the, the commander of the entire Marine Air Group put down an edict that anyone who wanted to go out past midnight to get a beer had to call the next in their chain of command. So in my case, it was someone who was 35 or 36. At the time I was 28. And th this rankled me to no end. You know, I had just come back from Afghanistan, flying $75 million aircraft off, you know, out of, off of aircraft carriers, making life, life and death decisions. And I got back to the U.S. and was told, you know what, we trust you to fly these jets and train others to fly these jets. But if you want to have a beer on your own, you can't do it. And so in a, in a fit of fury and anger, I remember walking around Balboa Park, which is a fantastic location in the middle of, of, uh, of San Diego, just ruminating and mulling what I should do about this. And I got this idea to write an article. And so I wrote this article called The Military Needs More Disruptive Thinkers, which I submitted to a friend uh, who ran this journal called Small Wars Journal, which was kind of an emerging, you know, small unit leadership uh, consortium in the military at the time. And he published it. And within 24 hours, it became the most read and most commented on article that they had ever had on this website. And you know, as I look back upon what I wrote, it was incredibly intemperate, and I'm a little bit embarrassed at the, at the language and the direct, uh, the direct conversation and language I used. But the bottom line was, I had basically shaken up the entire status quo and called them out for at that time, what was eight, eight years of failed uh, warfare focus in Iraq and Afghanistan, and said, hey, you know, we're losing these wars because we are not thinking outside the box and entrusting our people 
to make a difference and empowering them to use their innovative capabilities to the best of their, of their abilities. And that, that set off a whole chain reaction of events. A lot of, lot of people were critical of it, and rightly so. We need to have a lot of you know, robust conversation and innovation culture. But there were a couple senior leaders who said, you know what, maybe this kid is onto something. And a guy named Admiral Terry Kraft, who at the time was running the Navy Warfare Development Command, reached out via his admiral's aide and said, hey, Ben, you, know, you said a lot of very, uh, very aggressive things in this article. Why don't you come put your money where your mouth is and come work for me to build this thing called the Chief Naval Operations Rapid Innovation Cell? Give them a pot of money, in our case, about $10 million, and let them do whatever they wanted with it, technology, personnel, and kind of let them have the ability to determine what the future of, of the military would look like. And uh, we, we were able to basically, basically make a lot of fantastic policies, uh, but it was an official organization. And in parallel, because I had realized there was um, a lot of activity going on in the other services, I wanted to build an informal organization that I built called the, De the Defense Entrepreneurs Forum. And this was external to the military, but was composed of military officers from throughout all the services. And the way I recruited my leadership was similar to how I had been discovered. So I looked for folks, young folks, who were willing to write about what they were thinking about and get published and do so in a way that was provocative. And I recruited them on our leadership team. And that was the seed corn for this network of innovators that still remains to this day. You know, while the official Crick organization, as Joe mentioned, died in 2015 or 2016, the, the, the Defense Entrepreneurs Forum, which is where the virtuous insurgency came from, that endures to this day. And now we've, have, we've had conferences on three continents. Many allied countries have Defense Entrepreneurs Forums of their own. Uh, we host a national conference every year, which is incredibly well attended um, from junior people all up. And it's all about empowering individuals to realize their full potential and giving them the runway to experiment with their ideas. Taras Yatschenko is a Ukrainian uh, publisher of Tavoy Misto Media Hub here in Lviv, Ukraine. And he and I have been uh, great collaborators in this time of lockdown. Me as the American stuck here during this time. And we've worked together in many projects, including uh, on the Lviv Lab for the Activation of Democracy. But one of our early lockdown initiatives was to create an entrepreneur's crisis forum to bring together the leading CEOs and creative minds of the city of Lviv in a weekly Zoom conversation. Also sometimes bringing in people from, from around Ukraine and beyond these borders to in conversation, figure out how we can push and encourage each other to disrupt, to find ways to take the, the best opportunities out of this difficult time. And Taras, fresh from the his most recent uh, Entrepreneurs Crisis Forum, was able to join our conversation with Ben and to bring some of the perspectives and questions about how to be an intelligent disruptor uh, in this time. And so here's Taras uh, and, and Ben discussing some of those ideas they try to do as much as possible today but probably there is some disruption that is that is still needed to be present more and and they are seeking it and maybe maybe you can advise where where it may come from in in this period of crisis especially in a state like ukraine where there's almost nothing or let's say or almost no, or let's say no, uh, support from the government to to thrive through this difficult period when we have to find out where the money will be in where the where the new economics economies will uh, come from, and probably you also have some answer or advice to that. And how do we what disruptions are needed to 
to go through this develop to, through this time and to develop your business and not to make it die. The initial conditions in in our two countries are very different, and you know we have an immense amount of privilege just based on what we have in the U.S. in terms of resources, both in the public sector and private sector. And I'll be honest, and some of that makes it easier um, because you do have access to capital and, and things that maybe other other parts of the world don't don't have. But what I have found that's common across all cultures and, and, and countries are people willing to stand up and make a difference. And, you know, in, in, the, in the rapid innovation cell, we were, we were told to build technological solutions and to create widgets and to spend money on physical things. But what we always ended talking about at the happy hours and drinks afterwards or human capital and human talent management challenges, which actually don't require much money. Um, and our focus was how do we retain the best people? How do we recruit the best people? And how do we get them to interact with one another to create really insightful solutions down the line? And I actually would contend that a resource constrained environment allows you to be far more creative than one with an unlimited amount of money. And the example I give is if you look at the the Joint Strike Fighter Program in the United States, the F-35. You all probably heard about this. This is, you know, the, the airplane that's going to be the next generation fighter for us across all the services. The Brits have bought it. The Japanese are buying it. The Australians are buying it all over the place. The, the total price tag of that is going to be one trillion dollars, and it's going to be over thirty years. Um, but it's taken twenty plus years to get that into development. And so, while there's been an unlimited spigot of money there, the actual impact of that specific uh, tool, it's important, but it's, it's by no means equivalent to its cost. And so when you have unlimited money, you, you get complacent and lazy. On the flip side, you know, I look at, and I'll use our adversaries in Afghanistan and Iraq, you know, the insurgents, as horrific as their ideology is. The terrorist ability to adapt, Ben said, is remarkable. For the past 18 years, both Afghani and Iraqi insurgents in 16th and 17th century conditions, he said, have stopped the most powerful military in the world time after time. By using $400, $500, $600 tools to counter $5 billion technology solutions. And they paid an immense cost for that, but it's because they, have, they, are, they are focused on their end goal and they have a deep belief in what they're trying to accomplish. <laughs> But I'm saying adopt the methodologies of insurgents from across the world to lever the talents they do have. And as it comes to the Ukrainian you know, situation, um, in the context specifically, it sounds like you all have very forward-leaning individuals and people in your organizations who want to make change. And there's not a lot of financial resources. But if you can figure out a way to tap into their specific talents, give them runway to experiment with ideas, and cultivate that talent in the long run. Ben Coleman, as a naval fighter pilot, took on one of the world's most powerful organizations, United States military, with, with the support of senior leaders and created his rapid innovation cells. Perhaps with a similar innovative spirit to Rashetsenko and his wife Svetlana Zubuk in the, in the days right after the Euromaidan revolution, the revolution of dignity in 2014, came back to their home city of Lviv, Ukraine, and created Tavoy Misto, City of Yours, Media Hub, uh, an experiment to, to be believing that local media can be effective, can be sustainable, can make money, and, and can actually enhance democracy. And so both Taras and Ben were able to discuss some of their joint uh, experiences as disruptors, and, uh, and here's that conversation.
I do agree with you absolutely, and it would be great to hear some maybe practical also tips on or from your experience how how you advise to develop it because yeah uh, I, but I do agree with you absolutely because we've that's what we've also been doing here on a very local scale uh, when we created a media that is one of the very few independent media in in Ukraine at all and uh, when we were starting that six years ago everyone was telling us that we that it's it's impossible but late but today we have lots of people in Ukraine coming to learn from us and uh, while everyone in the in the market if we can call it market was saying six years ago that it's it's an impossible uh, challenge but yeah i think here we with limited resources we did have this some kind of success with mainly with talented people uh, so i do agree with you yeah well in, in terms of practical steps that's, that's a great question and a great thing to talk about you know when we started the Defense Entrepreneurs Forum, we, we had no resources and we explicitly said we did not want to take money from big defense contractors or the government. And so we had to bootstrap it from the bottom up. And the, the reason that people wanted to come to it was because they were meeting really interesting people from a variety of backgrounds and, and interest areas. So I think you have to have a very strong value proposition up front that draws people to this organization. And I think having it in, in as many industries and from diverse perspectives as possible creates that, that really enticing environment that folks want to be a part of because they're getting insights and resources and meeting people they wouldn't otherwise, wouldn't otherwise meet. And I remember the first national conference we had, this was probably 2013, um, it was in the midst of the government shutdown in the U.S. anyway. And so there was no money flowing to people. And what's, what's interesting about the military culture is people almost never, never, never travel unless the government's paying for it. But in this instance, we had junior officers who were taking vacation time and paying their own way with, with airfare and hotels to come to Chicago to meet with the 150 of us who just had this radical idea. And throughout the, the, the entirety of the deaf, the deaf existence, we have never had a full-time paid staff. We've never had anything more than paying for, you know, drinks and maybe some food at any of these events. We've had a budget of, you know, between ten or fifteen thousand dollars, and we've touched, you know, twenty-five to three thousand people with a very robust online presence. So, if you can get a really value-added organization that collects really interesting people to interact with each other, that's a really powerful combination. It doesn't take much money to do so. You know, I think in in COVID and with, and with shutdowns, a lot harder because that in-person interaction, that serendipity, is where a lot of the magic happens. But you can still facilitate that on, on Zoom calls like this. And I think, you know, the way to, to leverage that, though, is to, is to make time for creative, um, non-structured conversation and, and ideation. Whether it's small group breakouts or you have some sort of structure on a topic, you know, whether it's, you know, how do we increase the, the, the broadband access in Ukraine? Or how do we increase access to X, Y, or Z tool? Or how do we think about, you know, the future of automation or automotive in, in Ukraine? Like just have small five to six person breakout groups and have, you know, maybe a moderator spending half an hour in that discussion. And it'll be kind of rough at first, but getting really interesting people together, you can't help but have interesting conversations. And what the magic of that is, if you provide the platform, then people meet each other and kind of on their own, iterate on ideas. And so I, I harken back to what happened at DEF as well. You know, DEF is simply a platform. It's a place where people can come and convene together to have these conversations. 
what happened is we had individuals meet each other and build out the Military Writers Guild, which is now a huge writing consortium in the US to encourage people to write about topics of their interest. We had things come out like the Defense Innovation Unit. You know, we, we weren't solely responsible for the Defense Innovation Unit, but a lot of things we were talking about and the influences we had actually helped the government move in a new direction to tie themselves to Silicon Valley. That was individuals in our network of their own volition choosing to build relationships and collaboration with each other and moving forward because of our platform. So I think being a convening force like this organization right now is it's a, it's a really powerful start and can be done relatively cost free as long as you attract the right people and can bring interesting minds together to talk about interesting ideas. I think that, that's the key kernel of success right there. I shared with our group uh, your um, speech you gave in Canada about, uh, you know, technology is great, but people are better. And we had a strategic meeting for our Lviv Lab program and went through and uh, asked everyone, you know, what is our greatest resource right now? And everyone had the same answer. It's, uh, it's the people that we got people working every day, making no money right now, just believing in something. Is there some merit to this idea of in such a crisis, examining the team you have and maybe seeing if you even shift your focus entirely? Like rather than say, this is what I, you know, this was the mission of this company. Uh, and so, uh, you know, we have to somehow keep pursuing that. But instead to say, hey, these are the people we have and, oh, we can actually try something maybe even quite different. Is there a value to that type of thinking? Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, Paul Graham is a, a world-renowned innovator out of Silicon Valley. He started Y Combinator and is kind of the patron saint of innovation. You know, he has a quote that says, the best startups always emerge from crisis. You know, twofold. One, they're meeting a direct need, but also only crazy people do startups in crisis. They're the ones who have the most dedication and the most heart. And it really takes a lot of dedication to do it. You know, I think about all the changes in our, and that are happening in our world. There are a lot of industries and companies that will go belly up. And the ones that will, that will survive will be the ones who are able to adapt. So there's a great example in Dallas. There's a ride, there was a ride-sharing service called Alto. And they were trying to compete at the higher end of Uber and Lyft. And, you know, it was a subscription model. You paid a lot of money, but had a nice car, very good experience. COVID hits, and all of a sudden, their whole business model collapses. So what they did was they built relationships with local, local restaurants and became their go-to delivery service. So they leveraged their existing network and infrastructure of transportation methods with the need for restaurants to start delivering via hosting in-person things and now have a very robust delivery service. You know, it still remains to be seen whether or not that's profitable and lasts in the long run, but they were able and have the mindset to pivot to meet the exact need. So I think now is a fantastic time to experiment because as you mentioned, you know, it's, it's relatively, it's almost costless to try something new because you're not bringing any revenue anyway. So you might as well try something in the disruptive space. But I will also add, we have deep survivorship bias in the innovation space where we look at the success stories. We look at those who have, you know, come out with the multi-million or multi-billion dollar exits who have transformed economies and worlds, you know, behind those folks, you have tens, hundreds, thousands of people who tried and failed. And simply working hard and having an interesting insight is not a guarantee of success. So I don't want to like us to put on rose-colored glasses and say, if we just innovate better and we disrupt something, you know, it's all going to work out. You know, it is more than likely that whatever transition you try to make will not work. That does not mean it's not worth doing because you need the folks to push the envelope there and find out the things that will work. Um, but I like at Y Combinator itself, you know, they've funded somewhat north of 3,000 companies. They've put five to $10 billion at work in terms of capital. And they've only had, I think, five to eight unicorns, five to eight companies that are valued over $1 billion. 
And that's a pretty low hit rate if you think about what Silicon Valley is about. But it's that ecosystem with people who are just thinking about things fundamentally different that you're bound to have some successes coming out of there. And that success begets success. But we should also go in to crisis with a mindset of it's going to be really tough. And this, this harkens back to, to Jim Stockdale. So there's this thing called the Stockdale paradox, which has become really front and center in a lot of American conversations. So again, harkening back to the prisoner of war camp in, in 1970, he, when, he, when Stockdale was asked in the 80s, who, who survived the prisoner of war camp? He said it was the optimists were the first to actually lose faith and lose their mental capability because they were the ones who said, oh, we'll be out by Christmas. We'll be out by Easter. We'll be out by the 4th of July. But that always came and went and year after year passed. And they became the ones that were heartbroken who had the mental breakdowns because they just couldn't hack the fact that their reality was not matching with their optimism. But the people who were able to thrive and succeed were to take stock of their environments with the grim reality of their environment and do the needed things to survive, but also realize a better future is ahead in the, in, the, in the future. It's just not right now. So what can I do in the, in the interim to you know, reconcile myself to the current circumstances while also pushing forward for a better tomorrow? It's finding that balance where I think, especially in crisis, the best entrepreneurs, but also the best humans and the best crisis leaders really find that niche. And so thinking about the fact that, hey, just because we're doing something different doesn't mean we're successful. That mindset, though, is the first step to getting yourself prepared to, to be there for the long winter. Ladies and gentlemen, that's all the time we have for this episode, but we will have more with Ben next week with some very practical tips on how to sort of cultivate and maintain and nurture the disruptive mind. Uh, here's a teaser of what we'll, we will be hearing uh, in a week's time. I, I am constantly reading. And it's not just books, it's, it's all the stuff online. And, you know, the internet and social media is, is, a, is a hive of villainy, but it also has immense opportunity if you know where to look. And with that, I would like to thank, of course, uh, our guest, Ben Coleman. We will hear from him again in next week's podcast and with the continuation of this, this conversation. This conversation was part of the Lviv Lab webinar series, which is focused on the idea of what is journalism. But in a very disruptive way, we bring in people from all different professions and industries to figure out how we as journalists can find better ways to tell stories, to gather and share information, and how we can put together an effective and profitable startup because journalism must be paid for. So thank you all for listening. I'd like to thank our team, my uh, co-host and producer, Dennis Boyersko, the entire team of the Lviv Lab for the Activation of Democracy, our great supporters and friends at Tavoy Misto Local Media Hub in Lviv, and our friends at the Ukrainian Catholic University, also a very disruptive place, a university born of a noble dissident tradition. And uh, with that, we will say goodbye and dopobachina from Lviv, Ukraine. And of course, as always, uh, here's some music from our friends from Gothenburg, Sweden, the band Tornadoes. Thank you.